Hello. Uh, thank you all for coming uh, this afternoon to our, our, our talk this afternoon, uh, Portraiture and Politics. Um, I'm Eko Ash and I'm the curator of Forum, the um, talks program at 154 Art Fair. Uh, it's a great pleasure to um, introduce our panel and our, and our chair this afternoon, um, Dave Dave Bailey, um, uh, Katane Violet Hwami, um, Kamati, Kamati Donko, and Irving Pascal. Um, uh, I want to say just before anything, uh, thank you to Christie's Education, who are the sponsors of uh, the Forum program. And just briefly to introduce David before he introduces the panel. Uh, David A. Bailey has been working as an artist, curator for 30 years. He's currently based at ICF, the International Curators Forum. As a curator, curator he has a, an international <coughs> reputation and a commitment to exploring themes of history, race, and representation, uh, as exemplified by uh, curatorial proje projects including the Critical Decade, Black British Photography during 1990 uh, to 92, uh, Mirage, Enigmas and Race, Difference and De Desire at the ICA in 95, Back to Black uh, at Whitechapel in yes. 05, um, and then all the way through to uh, his current work with uh, the International Creative Forum uh, that's held kind of projects at Venice, at Documenta, at Munster in 2007 and, and continues to this day. Um, David, I hand over to you. Great, thank you. Thank you. Oh, and please join me in welcoming the panel. Welcome, and um, I'm glad there's so many warm bodies because I was a bit getting cold, <laughs> cold out there. Can we have phones on silent and phasers on stun, please? Um, so what we want to try to do today is to have a conversation and uh, which will take place in kind of three parts, really. One, to really um, get our participants to kind of prompt some discussions through their practice. And I've asked them to present aspects of their work. Um, and then secondly, to open it up amongst a conversation amongst ourselves. And then to kind of bring everybody together um, to kind of um, have a conversation together. Before we do that, I want to just give some opening remarks, some bit of bio to our speakers. And then also want to kind of, I have a few remarks as well in terms of my thoughts around the question around painting and politics as well. Um, so I've had to edit some of your bios, if that's okay. But, um, so um, Irving was um, born in London, England, um, where he works um, in London and Brighton. Um, attended the University of Brighton, um, working across painting, sculpture, installation, sound performance, film photography and printmaking. Irving explores personal and cultural narratives rooted in popular music from Africa and its diaspora. So I think diaspora is going to be like a common theme, which we'll explore um, later throughout our discussion. His use or persistent use of the colour black represents a means of inquiry into the language's form and abstraction, which bring together notions of race and status. Kamafi, who I know very, very well and um, has recently exhibited in the Diaspora of Inovelis, lives and works in London with a practice rooted in painting, drawing, collage and video. Examples of his work are held in the British Museum and the International Museum, Slavery Museum. Solo exhibitions include Some Clarity of Vision, Johannesburg, and Queens of the Undead at Inover, and of course, that Diaspora Pavilion at Inverness Biennale, and a history of drawing at the Camberwell Space. 
Because I know Arms work, um, well, sorry, my, my dance partner, as well as my speaking partner, because um, we've been dancing recently, work with these a deeply personal vision of South African life and raises issues around diaspora displacement and identity. Many of her paintings feature self-portraits and images of her immediate and extended family. Powerful nudes are another point of departure, boldly raising questions about the black body and its representation, as well as sexuality, gender, and spirituality. Thank you for all participating. I thought maybe as, not as a kind of way of framing the discussion, but to kind of start the process before we go into discussion, I have a few um, ideas I wanted to pursue. Can you pull up my PowerPoint? And these are just really kind of like um, ideas. So one of the ideas, I've got like four of them. Can we use painting as a social barometer to explore the social and political themes? And here I'm thinking about 1998, Christopher Lee's No Woman I Cry, which referred to many things, including the murder of Stephen Lawrence. Can I have the second, which was obviously, if those have seen it, was in, in the kind of the teardrop. Um, second, um, a third image. Also, can we think of painting as historical narratives? Whether we know there's a genre called narrative painting anyway. And here I'm thinking about Lavena Heyman's 1987 series, Scenes of the Life of Toussaint the Overture. Next slide. Again, can we think about painting at, and its context? So again, here I'm thinking about 1937, Picasso's Guernica, um, of course made after his African influence period, we won't go down that road, which in one context highlighted the Spanish Civil War but in another context, in 2003, if people must know this, the tapestry version was covered up by the Bush administration when they were arguing for the case for the war on Iraq. And my last one. Oh, not that one. Uh, next one. Yes. Sorry, it's not really that big, but um, I'm a bit obsessed with this painting. Um, this is from a show I did on the Harlem Renaissance at the Hayward Gallery. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in the idea of um, what one would call a unique signature and the idea of, of can we talk about blackness as a unique signature. And the reason I say that is because Richard Powell, or Professor Powell, um, African-American historian, has a question about the blues aesthetic and can we look at visual artworks through the lens of a blues aesthetic. And he uses... Um, the work of Archibald Motley, who's, this is his famous work called Blues, made in 1929. And I just want to kind of take two quotes from um, Powell. Uh, one where he says, Motley's use of bright colours, the domestic interior, um, relates to things like cubism, geometry, symmetry, and most importantly, the true realisation of what Powell calls the blues aesthetic, which makes him what he thinks a really kind of exceptional, um, unique signature. And I want to come back to this when we look at, well, particularly when you talk about your work. So in this painting, um, Powell says, blues <coughs> begins with a visual rhythm of the heads of the preferred trumpeter and trombone player at the extreme left, um, but breaks the pattern with the heads of the clarinet player on the left and the guitarist to his right whose positions are mirrored by the men dancing on the right-hand side of the canvas. The two couples dancing with each male partner's backs facing outward have generally the same position, but these rhythms as well are interrupted. 
On top of these more obvious design schemes, Motley fragments the composition almost to the point of evoking a quilt or to a lesser extent a synthetic cubist painting. So then he goes on to say, well, Motley's multiplicity of compositional elements, their interruptions, their reintroductions are not unlike the riffs and stop time of a fellow New Orleans Chicago-based jazz legend, Louis Armstrong. Both were working in Chicago at the same time. Both Motley and Armstrong are able to create a sense of rhythm intrigue through improvisation and syncopation against a fairly structured format. For Armstrong, the format is established by the basic melodic structure scheme and ever-present beat of the rhythm section. Hence comes the notion of swing in jazz. Whereas for Motley, his visual departures strut across an implied system of antate anticipated shapes and recurring interviews, so Motley's also swinging with his painting. The persistent changes in Motley's blues have a counterpart in Armstrong's music virtuosity in that for both artists, the issue at hand concerns feeling the beat rather than seeing or hearing it. So this is something I want to come back to when we talk about his work, whether or not we could think about works of blackness or works from the diaspora as a very particular aesthetic. Um, and I just want to leave it there. Can I ask Kamafi to um, re re talk about your work and kind of present some of, some of your ideas? I'd be happy to, David. Thank you. <laughs> and if you weren't happy to, would that still be the same? <laughs> okay, so I'm going to do this talk slightly different to how I normally do my talks, which is by going through paintings and giving a kind of deep well, it's not deep, superficial understanding of their meanings and, um, you know, why I created them. But today I'm going to do a slightly, something slightly different, which is just leave these images to work through themselves and talk to you about something which I think works with this subject quite well. So back in 2013, I was invited to take part in a residency in um, Lisbon, um, and the residency was called offline between transits and journeys, and the organization was called Therem, I think. It's with an X, so I don't know, I'm just trying to be a bit Iberian. Is it Therem, Therem, Exerem? But anyway, so they invited me to come, and they asked me to do a proposal, obviously, for the residency. And when I was thinking about the subject of this talk, then, and I wanted to use like this image particularly, and, and the other painting which is coming up, um, and I sort of was looking back at um, you know, the documentation around the residency. I read through my proposal then, and it just fitted so well with what we're here to discuss. So I'm, what, all I'm going to do is just read through my proposal to Therim from 2013, and hopefully it will make sense in terms of what we're here to talk about. So um, <clears throat> proposal for participation in the 2013 International Workshop offline between transits and journeys, organized in Lisbon by Therem. <clears throat> and they asked me a description of work to be undertaken during the workshop. I will give my painted portraits of three Afro-Lisboans to the sitters. See community section below. For more than a decade, I have created many portraits of African-European people, often depicting them as characters in historical dramas such as the life of Queen Njinga or the Haitian Revolution. I have received reviews, commissions, sales, awards, residencies as a result of this work. Most of my sitters have received satisfaction through the knowledge of their participation 
or sometimes a small modeling fee. For example, during my 2011 residency with the British School at Rome, three Afro-Romans devoted their time to sitting for me, thus enabling me to complete the project. However, I left Rome with the finished painting, which is now part of my oeuvre, as they say. So although I give my work to the world in the form of exhibitions, and I do sometimes pay my sitters, I would like to reflect the generosity that the Afro-European community has given to me over many years by creating three individual portraits during my residency in Lisbon and giving the finished paintings to my sitters as a gift from myself and Therem. I would like and need Therem to identify three suitable candidates who are prepared to give their time to sit for the portraits. This, for me, is also a departure, as I usually organize photographic sittings and work from the photographs. In this case, I shall use the ancient method of working directly with the sitter. Portrait painting has an intriguing place in the contemporary art world, sometimes seen as anachronistic and conservative. However, there are certain concepts at play in this practice which have important contemporary significance. For example, in the title, I, and then I sort of break it down in relationship to the title of the project, which, like I said, was offline between transits and journeys. So the concept of offline. An oil, an oil painting is a craft object, personally handmade in an era of an anonymous machine production. It is usually slow and considered in an era dominated by high-speed cameras. Sorry, it is usually slow and considered in an era dominated by high-speed cameras and instant facial recognition software. In the museums, galleries, and mansions of the West, the oil portrait is regarded as the repository of national treasure, where the great and good are immortalized by genius. However, Africa also has a long tradition of high-status portraiture, stretching back to the pharaohs, through the Fayum, to Ife of 1,000 years ago, and now evident in the homes of business and political leaders. In its contemporary survival, is the handmade portrait purely a conservative retreat from progress and an assertion of luxury and privilege? Or is it inevitably an item of kitsch, a pastiche object that aspires only to emulate and appropriate the aura of an authentic and ethnocentric luxury item? Or is it now also possible that it can be, along with other handicrafts, a subtle form of resistance to the automation, digitization, and corporate state control of the means of representation? And then I look at the concept of transits and journeys. Afro-European or Euro-African subjects often find themselves situated by the media and political practice on the fault lines of political conflict and intransigent binaries. Whites and Christians seen as colonizers versus blacks and Muslims as victims or insurgents. With mixed or so-called migrant people viewed as being out of place and in between those pure binaries. But obviously, life is far more complex and complex than such simplistic formulas allow. So, for instance, much of Africa was Christian before Europe was. Africans also enslaved millions of Europeans. African states have had periods of military conquest and domination in Europe. All Europeans are themselves descendants of African pioneers. I hope that my portraits of Euro-Africans can inevitably embrace this infinitely complex history embodied in its subjects, including myself, and my methods. I also hope that this can assist viewers to revisit what they think they know. Once the portrait has been created and given to my sitter, I will inevitably relinquish control of its destiny. Where will it go? Who will possess it? How will it be valued, cared for, or discarded? For me, 
This moment of transit will be unusual, as I have consistently kept my work within a well-regulated cycle of ownership and circulation. Will this gift be a burden or a blessing to its new owner? Will anybody even want to take part? And then I sort of went through a list of um, equipments that I wanted them to buy for me, which is quite a long <laughs> list. 20 tubes of premier quality oil paints. It's pretty, I, and I think they did. I think they were quite generous. Um, no, no, I didn't use it all up. I didn't use it all up. Um, <coughs> so, and then space necessary to develop the work. Studio with good daylight, good ventilation, access to running water. Um, they asked do, if I wanted to have access to the photographic archive in Lisbon, um, which I don't think I answered. Do you want to, during the workshop, do you want to do, during the workshop, any public presentation event? And I said, I'm happy to give a 20-minute presentation about portraiture in African and European history. And so when I read that, I was thinking, oh, why didn't I just use that presentation for today? But, oh, well. <coughs> do you intend to work with the community? Yes. I would like to center, to create three portraits of Afro-Lisboans, Afro-Lisboans. They will be people having a strong personal connection to Lisbon and a strong personal connection to Africa. They can be of any race, age, gender, religion, sexuality, or nationality. The only condition is that in their biography, they have a connection to Lisbon and a connection to Africa. An example could be that they were born in Lisbon to African parents, or that they have African and Portuguese heritage. The word African, for me, includes the entire continent, including Muslim and Arabic-speaking countries and people of overseas territories, such as Brazil, or in the Caribbean, or the United States. I include people classified as white, but who may have lived in or been born in an African country or district. It is up to, to the individual to define their own Afro-Lisboan heritage. Each sitting will last three days, um, three times eight hours. Sitters must be prepared to give this time. At the conclusion, the portrait will be given to the sitter. Sitters must be prepared to take the paintings with them. They are free to dispose of them as they choose. And I'm sure that if my art dealers had known that I was going to be doing this, they would have like, been horrified. But anyway, thanks very much for listening. I think I'll leave it at that. Thank you. I've just got a few notes. I mean, what I really liked was how, come after you talked about the, um, I would say, the mise en scene between the sitter and, and the artist, which I thought was interesting in some of the pictures you were showing, but also in terms of that kind of relationship. Um, Love the idea of opening up the process, because everybody also, it never, people think it's this kind of mythical, this whole residency. So I think it was great that you kind of opened it up. Really interested in the way you talked about the notion of handcrafted objects in how now in the 21st century mass media representation and what does, it, what does it mean to have these kind of objects that are handcrafted in that context. Really loved that, that, that we talked about that, that moment of transit, which I thought was interesting. Where does the work go after that, after the sitter? Where does it reside? What kind of life does it have? What kind of context does it have? I think these are things that we can come back to and kind of think about again and again. Susanna, are you ready to, and do you want to sit or do you want to take? I will stand. You, you stand? Oh, great, okay. The floor is yours. Am I the one choosing the, the am I? 
Wait, no. Get them ready. Okay. There you go. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, I wasn't sure um, exactly where I was going to start with the presentation, but I wanted to um, use the solo show that I had at Tyburn Gallery last year. Um, yeah, and, and talk about that and uh, what that show was about. Um, and uh, I guess like that show was themed around uh, displacement, nostalgia, family, and the diaspora. Uh, and I guess in the show, I, uh, I played with the idea of um, fictional narratives. And um, you know, I was using photographs that I found from my aunt's stack of albums. And I wanted to tell the story of the journey from Zim from Zimbabwe to South Africa and then to uh, the UK. So I wanted to speak about uh, migration as well and what that plays, what that has to do with my my identity and being in the in the UK and how I fit in the society. Uh, and I guess that's why I called my I called the show. Um, if you keep going south, you'll meet yourself. I was kind of, um, I wanted to um, talk about how you don't really have, you're not rooted in one place. And so being part of the diaspora, it was, it's a good thing, I think. I, I don't think, I would have, you know, the opportunities to be here if I were. Sorry. My bad. <laughs> yeah. So um, this, the work that that's over here is not. I'm showing you work that I've done before the solo show, and I've dealt a lot with gender, and it has to do with, I guess, the personal is polit political. So I, my work doesn't necessarily have, have the political stance, but it does deal with a lot of what's happening with the young generation right now, with the, um, I guess, millennials. Um, and I was dealing with gender and using the self as a starting point. And I've also done work, this, is, this was done in 2016, and I was looking at spirituality. Um, basically speaking about uh, uh, the Garden of Eden. So returning to the garden, in a, I, was, I wanted to uh, talk about the, the spiritual side of the black body. Because um, a lot of the time when you're a black body, you are just sort of, and you're an artist, you are put in the box of um, political here. You are made to make work that talks about the, about where you're from and, 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 and your 
how you feel about the, um, the, the politics regarding your country that you, you're, you're from. Um, so this was part of the, this was in the solo show, if you keep going south, you'll meet yourself. And again, I was creating narratives that really don't exist. So the image is from my aunt's album, but I recreated it. And Sekuru Kony, I've never, I don't know who that is. I've made it up. And so the narratives are, are made up. They're not rooted in reality. Uh, Girl by the Veranda is also, was also at the solo show. If you keep going south, you meet yourself. And there's Family Portrait, which is also part of the solo show. If you keep going south, you meet yourself. And here is, um, so my work is autobiographical. And in this image, you in that uh, right corner, you see upper corner is my, is the lady that helped to, to take care of us when we were, when I was young. And then the, um, the, the little girl in the middle is me. And that's my mother and my brother and my um, my stepbrother, the guy with the face scrubbed off. And then this is currently at the Zeit Smoker. And I called it um, Young Roberta because it was, I was speaking about Mugabe and a reincarnation of Mugabe in the future. I guess that's, that's why it's called Young Roberta circa uh, 2018. And this is currently showing at the um, Ren Biennale Lotus. And this is where I am speaking about the spirituality. Um, and a homage to my, to my mother who made it possible for, for me to be here. Uh, in the UK, but uh, besides that, I think I've been exploring um, Buddhism and having that, being confused about where you come from and should you follow the Shona culture, the Shona spirituality, or should you be Christian, because that's also how Zimbabweans are brought up, or should, which path should you choose? And so I guess it's part of the whole confusion. And, and this is called uh, Hosanna Hosanna, which is also part, part of the Ren Biennale. And I am, I'm dealing with duality again because of my interest in Buddhism. The, the image that's, the lady that's sitting down, that's from a pornographic film. Um, and then my aunt is the one in, in, in standing with her eyes closed. And again, I'm dealing with duality between, you know, Mary Magdalene and, um, and uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Oh yeah, and that's it. Um,
yeah, and I have a lot. I mean, you 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 raise some questions about the those three questions that you and I. Yeah, I have more to answer when okay. when the time is right. But okay. for now, that. that's it. No, that's brilliant. Thank you. Great. Great. That that was actually really really good and. Um, such, such layered work. Um, I'm just going to pick out a few points before um, Hark's over to join us. Um, love the idea that somehow from a family album you're creating these fictional narratives, which I thought was quite interesting. Let's, yeah, let's talk about more about the personal, the self, spirituality, and how we, think about the, how we can think about those things residing in the inside of the black body. Um, really loved this idea, and I think we need to talk about this more, is your sense that, you know, it's not rooted in reality that you're just making these things up, which I actually think is actually brilliant because nobody really talks about the notion of blackness and the imagination, or the imagi ima imagination, imaginary. God, I didn't even say that. Um, so we need to talk about that, the, the notion of blackness and the imagination. I think it's really important, and obviously it's quite a really key facet. And, um, really wanted to talk more about the family portrait of 2017 where you have there's a lot of play around photography where you have again this is like it's almost it's like a, a positive and a negative there's a negative in the corner and how you kind of explore the tropes between the two so there's a lot there we can come back to but really, i thought really really brilliant our last singer tonight <laughs> over in the floor is yours <laughs> Thank you all for being present today. It's great to see many familiar faces in the crowd. Um, I've curated a selection of, of works from the last three years of my practice um, that I'd like to use as reference points to share some of my thoughts and ideas. So upon arriving at art school to study Miami and fine art in 2015, I made a decision to depart from the traditions of realistic portrait painting and sculpting, I wanted to experiment with new forms of human representation. We were given the freedom to take our practice into whichever direction we were interested in going. And so I started experimenting with film and decided to use myself as a performer. I utilized my body in poetic ways to create narratives around the human condition. For my MA degree show in 2017, I curated a body of work I had made that seemed to be dealing with an extraction of my unconscious thoughts uh, sorry, hold on, about my masculinity. The work functioned as a type of self-inflicted psychoanalysis. I built an 11-foot Hermaresque sculpture called Fruits of Labour. The work is predominantly constructed from wood offcuts that I've collected from my wood, from my um, studio floor. I was interested in the notion that one could elevate the value of lower class materials. I wanted to acknowledge key figures in sporting history that had played roles in increasing the visibility and acceptance of the black male in parts of British society. I was interested in the, in the idea that the bodies of pugilists such as Chris Eubank 
and Bill Richmond transcended into weapons against oppression faced by many in society. Today we see figures like Anthony Joshua, the current heavyweight champion of the world, who continue to continue this discourse. Tribes and Swaggering, Three Chicken Wings, One Breast and a Chicken Burger with Cheese is a film that I made for the show. In the work, I juxtapose elements of found videos against the backdrop of me indulging in a chicken meal from Chicken Cottage. <laughs> the spectacle of me eating fried chicken became an act, of, an act to demonstrate a freedom of cultural expression. The work was a visual documentary demonstrating how my identity has partially been influenced by the acts of superstars that I've identified with through their visibility in the media. And so I'll play a short clip for you um, from the film. So I made a, a sculpture called Chief Aristocrat, which was selected for the Bloomberg New Contemporaries in 2017. My late grandfather, who was a chief in Calabar, Nigeria, became an inspiration for the title of the work. The totemic structure can function as a symbol of the body as a weapon. Chief aristocrat's form can be suggestive of a shank, which brings forward the unavoidable conversation around the state of knife crime in the UK, especially in London. I ask myself questions about how the commodification of knife crime between young black males affects our overall identity. After university, I began making a series of photographic self-portraits. On one hand, I wanted to pay homage to moments in, his in the history of portraiture. I was thinking about how portraits could be used to adjust cultural narratives. In Krebs' cell, I was thinking about the work of American artist David Hammonds, who I feel deals with discourses surrounding cultural politics. In, in July this year, I was included in a group show curated by Yinka Shonibare called Talisman in the Age of Difference. Um, it was at Stephen Friedman Gallery in London. Um, Shonibare selected a group of artists who are making provocative work that consciously belies a subversive and political message and does not necessarily conform to Western vision of art. In self-portrait as Jean-Michel Basquiat, I wanted to celebrate the, his, his, he, his heroic status and acknowledge the, the effect his identity has had on many artists practicing today, including myself. And so here are some images of my current solo show called The Sweetest Taboo. Um, it's currently uh, on at GNYP Gallery in Berlin, Germany, and it's on until the 21st of October. I named the show after the 80s hit single by Sade because I feel as if some of the subject matters I'm dealing with can be a kind of taboo. Power Show is an important work featured in the exhibition. The work takes its title from a song by Afrobeat star Felakuti. The painting supports my ideas of an artistic language that I derive named Afro Sublime. So I'm currently in the place where I'm interested in trying to define 
what pop culture is today. I feel as if diasporic music such as hip hop, reggae and R&B has shifted the dynamics of pop. Afrobeat and Afro House is now part of that conversation. We now see music icons such as Drake and Skepta collaborating with Afrobeat stars such as Wizkid. And then you see US rapper French Montana making videos regularly in Africa. 15 years ago, this would have been a taboo. So now I see that the connection between Africa, Caribbean, the UK and America is now stronger than ever. And so that concludes the, my discussion today. And thank you all for listening. And if you want to follow up on my practice, you can follow me on Instagram or check out my website. Brilliant. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you, Evan. We'll go back. Thank you for that, Irvin. Um, there's lots. There's lots there. Um, I think mainly I love the idea that you you make people really think about the notion of painting on the canvas quite radically differently in terms of different mediums that you use. Love the idea that your works vacillates between contemporary debates, knife crime, like crucial, important, and but also popular culture. A, a lot of your vacillates between the two, and really complex ways in which you're using experimentation and psychoanalysis, I thought was really quite interesting. And, um, but also, I, do, I think that it's great, your work is like in homage to people like David Hammond's, and I was like thinking about David Hammond's body prints and how your work is almost like you're putting your own print yeah. or your own marker on, 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 on your work in the same way that David does. And really would like to talk more about this question of the Afro-sublime, which I thought <laughs> is really, really interesting yeah. as well. But, I mean, just all very, very rich and very kind of all layered. I mean, that, this is something we could, we, could, we could at least spend a couple of hours. Um, do you want to respond to some of the questions that I raised earlier before? I felt like... Um, Sorry, <laughs> well, I think that... These guys have blown my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I'm just like, I need a break. Should we go to the bar then? Um, so, I mean, I talked about, like, Tutelar Overture and narrative painting, mm. which I think is very much... I mean, it's very much all of your work. I, I think specifically some of your work is very much historical narrative but also contemporary narrative. Like, um, I think it's Cynthia Jarrett was the one... But then I think that will relate to also knife crimes, to some of the stuff that's going on in, in South Africa. So I feel that with all of you, narrative, historical narrative is really important. Context is also very important for all of you. And also aesthetics are really important for all of you. Um, in some cases, I remember, Carefree, that sometimes you paint, you reverse the canvas and you paint behind the canvas. Um, you overstretch the canvas to include different forms of media. Mm. You really kind of push the question about not so much photography, but photorealism and the question of um, bodily representation in your work. And just really wanted to kind of say a, a little bit more about either one of those questions that, that I, I, I wanted to raise. Um, if you want to kind of let's go, let's go forward. First. Yeah, I mean, can I start with the notion of. Um, 
sort of uh, narrative or history that you mentioned and, and historical narrative. And it's, it was a really point which I think um, Kudz and I raised, which um, was, I, was very important to my work, and I also think relates to Irving's as well, which you talked about. It's not just a matter, I think, of considering, of, as it were, simply documenting a historical event. Or it's, I think what an artist does is they try to bring an emotional response to the way that individuals might be, you know, might be situated in relation to a historical event. And so I think this question which you raised about spirituality, and I mean, there's this, I mean, there's one way of thinking about spirituality, which is in terms of like, you know, religiosity and that kind of stuff. But also for me, it was perhaps more important is about people's inner feelings and the ways of communicating feeling. And I think that's something which is really, so for me, yeah, this, it's not simply that there's, that there's um, a historical context for depictions of the black body, but rather we, I think we're engaged with, well, I certainly think that I'm engaged with, with a sense of the emotional impact that events might have on people who are involved, but also on audiences and on how, how do we as people respond to the, you know, like the, the painting of Cynthia Jarrett being sort of um, um, accosted by these police officers. What, for me, that, what that painting is about for me is really the, the effect that that had on, on me when I heard that and on the, on the community when we sort of, um, you know, heard about this, this kind of um, brutality. So that's, that's what I wanted to say. To me, emotion... Um, the inner feeling, that's really the, the key that I'm trying to sort of get across. But I don't know if, my, if that's shared by you guys. Yeah, I, I wanted to say that um, I think, I think um, it's easy to get lost in the dialogue, in the political dialogue. In, uh, and I think my fear is, is, is getting lost in that um, narrative of Having to make, having to document history. Uh, sometimes imagination, I think, has been uh, taken away from us as as black artists. Yeah, yeah. Um, we we can't really <coughs> expand beyond uh, the reality of our of our lives, and I, I, that's how I feel. But, and I think that's what I'm trying to do with the work. I want the work to expand beyond the, the pain that we are all feeling with. Uh, I mean, there's, there's so much happening with, uh, to black bodies right now and has been in the past. And I'm kind of aiming for the future and I guess freeing up the black imagination will create narratives that can um, create something that, that is worth, worthwhile for the future, I guess. But it's also important to document the, what's happening, but I think there should also be a, a balance. Yes, I mean, I, I get a sense from your work is that it's not so much attention, but it's to get to that situation about imagination, spirituality, your work almost like pushes, like you, it somehow doesn't want to be um, representational, and it doesn't want to be abstracted, but it's somehow the work is, is a combination of both. There are elements yeah. of abstraction within your work, work paint works, um, 
but it, it's grown across attention around the representational, I felt, as well. Um, Irvin, did you want to kind of respond to what Kimafi had said about that question about spirituality? And I guess in my own work, um, I kind of play between the two. So, you know, sometimes I, I bring in elements of, of um, fantasy and imagination and I allow the spirit to take over when it comes to me actually making the work. But then sometimes I like to reflect on the situation now, and, you know, more, more in terms of celebrating what's going on rather than, you know, playing the victim as such. Because I see that there's, there's, there's a massive improvement in, in the visibility and acceptance of, of black culture across the world. So, you know, in, in my work, I'm just currently trying to find ways of, of linking spirituality and reality, mm. I guess. Yeah, and I think in some ways, it's almost like we don't want to be caught up in the cul-de-sac of being labelled as black artists and being able to kind of pursue a particular genre within that, but yeah. somehow want to somewhat, somehow um, embrace it but, and at the same time refuse it. So I think with all of you, there's an ambivalence. Um, but also, I think within the, your ambivalence, I think what's interesting is, is each of your works is, is, and this is not to take away the political nature of your work, I think it's, it's very playful. Um, I think the way in which you work, I feel is very playful. I think definitely in terms of your performance works, yeah. I can definitely see a kind of playful humour around yeah. that, but also kind of a cutting-edge seriousness mm. in it, almost as if it's like coming from like a... I don't know, a hardcore Richard Pryor or, you know, um, a kind of um, performance piece from that. And, and also with your works, which, you know, crosses biblical lines and to pornography is also quite a really interesting trajectory to play with. But the way in which you do it is, I feel, very, very playful in terms of, like, um, very intimate... Like this, the hand in hand, um, the two, it's very kind of um, the format of the kind of two, it's what, what they were called in cinema, the two aperture shots, it's the kind of the two, the two bodies very close. Um, so I feel like your POVs or your point of views are very different and I feel that to get back to the emotion spirituality which you're talking about, um, uh, Kim Affey, is is basically the way in which you guys develop your practice. I think for you, um, what I like about your work and how you bring spirituality to your work is, is how you, you expand it. So, so for instance, your large kind of um, painting you did for Diaspora Pavilion, um, some of them are very expanded narrative scenes. Mm -hmm. And then with Cynthia Jarrett, Jarrett, it's almost like a very intense, claustrophobic close. Um, and I get that from all of you, kind of you play with the expanded frame but somehow you want to also have this very, very tight, close, intimate nature. And I think that's a way, it's a way for me to read the work. And I feel that that's a kind of generosity that you give to the work for the audience to kind of read into that. Um, Can I say something? Yes. About portraiture, because I think all of us have, are dealing with portraiture very seriously in different, in different kind of ways. And, and I really like what um, Irvin said about... Um, I mean, like what both of you said. 
<laughs> just pulling on. I really like what Irving said about uh, um, the, the idea of a. Uh, well, I think both of you had this similar thing. You, you, you were talking about a sort of a, a, an homage almost to, or a celebration mm. you spoke of, of the sort of um, the, the, of the, the celebration of black bodies um, the, you know, in, in the world, in the world of uh, the, the, the media and entertainment and stuff. Mm. And you spoke about an, a kind of a future, envisioning a kind of future. And for me, where, what that ties into is a, a really important notion which is very key to the whole idea of portraiture, which is one of love. And I think, so for, for me, one of my, uh, I mentioned it in the, the presentation I gave, one of the important kind of touchstones, this is not stone, <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe it is, glass is stone, yeah. one of the important touchstones for this, of thinking about um, African portraiture, for want of a better word, is the, the portraits of, from Ife, the ancient sort of um, um, city situated in what is now Nigeria, where you have these really um, very beautifully crafted sort of, um, they, what they call them bronzes, um, sculptures of people's faces, which are so sort of, you know, I don't know if any people have come across these works in, 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 the, in the flesh, as it were, yeah. but you cannot help but sent, get a sense of the intense love that the sculptor felt towards the person who they were attempting to represent. And, or at least, and not only that, but that they were trying to instill within the viewer that there was something about, does that, does that make sense? Yeah, and I think portraiture in general has that kind of quality that it is about, um, so yeah, it, it is about in the engendering a kind of sense of compassion Empathy um, within, you know, in in a part in in the viewer towards the the sitter or subject. So I just wanted to just put that and ask whether you guys um, had whether love was an important aspect to your to your work as well. Yeah, I mean, I always look back at, especially now that you mentioned about the Ife's sculptures, I always um, refer back to the stone sculptures in Zimbabwe and how those sculptures were uh, very spiritual. I mean, they, they were not making those works um, to, to set an agenda. And, and they were trying to, like you're saying, captivate the, the, the person who's looking at the work. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I try to have that spirit, the, the stone sculptures of Zimbabwe had. When I'm making my work, and I think it's 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 a bit difficult, but because you have to, I think there is a sense of responsibility that you have when you're an artist to look at the current affairs and try to, you know, raise awareness in a way. But I always try to go back to the stone sculpture, the the, the way that they created the work. Um, yeah. I don't know if I've answered that question. Yeah. Of course you did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so love, love for me. Um, in, in my work, I mean, I usually like to spend time making work that I, um, I mean, where portraiture is concerned. I like to include images of people that you know I have an affinity towards. So that's not that goes beyond the black body. You know, 
I'm interested in in uh, European culture, Asian culture, you know. But then I'm I'm interested in seeing how all the cultures in the world kind of relate to the black experience in some degree. Um, so, you know, and maybe that, that ties in with what you were saying about Buddhism as well. Yeah. Maybe, mm. you know, just yeah. sorry to interrupt. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but carry on, yeah. Um, yeah. So, and I guess that comes across in the work because if you actually have a passion towards a subject, then it affects the way that you treat what you're manipulating, I guess. Um, yeah. But I feel like that's, that's inherent in all of your work because the work is, to have love is to, is to be very much caring, very much um, uh, part of a kind of process of seduction. Um, in your, so the work, your work is very, all of your works are very seductive, they're very invitational, mm. even though you could argue there is confrontational elements within the work. Yeah. But I think that goes to your historical sources that you talked about, the sculptures and... Um, and what, what you're kind of referring back to is the confrontational element to that. Um, we, could, we could talk about this, sorry, I just realised we could talk, talk about this for, for days, but I just wanted to use this as an opportunity to share, share the love um, with our audience. Um, who, I mean, this is a, a remarkable group of um, artists we have. This is your opportunity to ask those intimate and caring questions that you've been burning to ask. <coughs> I've got two. Right, so I've, um, I've really enjoyed all of your uh, presentations about your work. Um, this is kind of, it's a question, but it's also just a kind of note that I have based on what you were saying. So I've been thinking about whether there's a unifying vision that African artists on the continent and in the diaspora are working with or pulling from a shared imaginative space, like maybe. Um, I'm interested in where this comes from, maybe a collective memory. Um, we all know we're like not monolithic, <laughs> but I've noticed that many artists of African descent tend to work across multiple media. And this may be a consideration of what you were saying earlier about, um, about blackness and um, sort of a unique signature. Um, and what I think was, was it Irvin that said about um, this African sublime? I don't know, yeah, I just kind of want to return to that yeah. a little bit and try to maybe, yeah, consider whether that is something that exists within the work that you make, but also the work that many other artists of African descent make. So just so I can clarify, so I can wrap it into a question. So this, you've got several questions there. One is, is there a unifying vision? That's the question, another question. And then there was a question directly to you about saying more about Afro sublime. Do you, who wants to respond first to the first, the first question? Uh, <laughs> is there a unified vision? I think um, when I look at the, when I look at Afrofuturism, I think of a unified vision of a, an African utopia. Um, I think that's that's exactly where my mind went when you asked that question. Um, yeah, and yeah, I think that's all I have to say about that. Can I think you have anything to add to that? 
No, I, I really like that response. Um, I thought it made it made sense. Um, that that I suppose one of um, I suppose one of the things that kind of w we we can't escape from um, thinking about um, is, for example, we know that at present there's a kind of a, a, a massacre taking place in the Mediterranean, where you know literally every month hundreds of people are risking their lives to, to leave Africa in order to have a sort of a so-called better life. And there's a, that's a kind of part of a utopian vision. And that these people have, that they're seeking to better their thing. And, and, and so the reason I'm raising that is that um, that reality you know, of a sort of endemic poverty, the, the, the multiple wars, dictatorships which have taken place in various countries around the time, we cannot escape that reality. And that does produce something, which is a vision, which is how do we transcend this reality? How do we, as peoples, a people, or whatever you want to call it, or you know, however you want to, to, to enable it, how do we transcend that, those kind of miseries into something which is you know, more optimistic, more hopeful, you know, where people don't feel the need to be you know, to forced to, to leave their, their homeland in these kind of desperate circumstances. So what you're saying there about this utopian vision, it's not this, this idea that there must be a better future. We, we believe, we want, we, we try to envision a, a more um, egalitarian and sort of um, free future is, I think, a very potent um, force amongst artists. For sure. So yeah, I agree with that response. Yeah, I also think beyond the egalitarian mm. idea, there is also the um, the idea of uh, personal and self responsibility and trying to see what you can do as an individual. To are you able to go back home? Are you is that a possible thing? And if you can, then go back to Africa and, and try to do something. I mean, my idea is to go back to Zimbabwe and build skate parks, because that's what I like, and I think kids would like that. <laughs> Why not? But I guess, yeah, just seeing a way to, where can you put your hand, I guess? That's... I think you want to talk about Afro Sublime. Um, and also, we <laughs> just all respond to what's been oh. for the first question as well. I've kind of been thinking about Afro Sublime. <laughs> go for it, go for it. <laughs> um, so for me, um, Afro Sublime kind of came uh, after university. During university, I was, I was learning about philosophy of aesthetics, and I came across some work about, by this um, Irish philosopher called um, Edmund Burke. And in, in his philosophies, I started to to um, become familiar with some of the laws that he stated equate to the sublime. And so I started to think about objects that I'd grown up with, because my mum was Nigerian, so she would collect these African sculptures and keep them in the house, and I never really understood what they meant. And they had this like kind of quality of the unknown. So then, I guess through the philosophy of Edmund Burke, I kind of learned how some of the choices the, the sculptors made kind of were working in relation with the sublime. So I um, made up this, this terminology called Afro-sublime to kind of 
um, put a kind of, um, uh, what's, what's the word? Um, because the way I work is kind of visceral, so I, yes. I, I listen to, to, the, to this like, thing inside me when I'm working, and it's, like, it's quite, quite free, you know, but I kind of control it sometimes. So I, but then when the work comes ac- across to the viewer, it, you know, sometimes there are these unknown qualities around it. So I, I felt that how I could describe it by the terminology Afro-sublime, you know, and that's where it lies. That's great. Yeah. There was, there was one at the front, but before then, the person at the back, sorry, was before, before you. Hi, Eduardo da Costa. I just wanted to ask a question regarding um, blackness and art. Does black art have to always be political? Can it transcend its parameters? Um, or is it the fact that because people see black bodies as intrinsically political, you cannot divorce yourself from making a statement that's political even though you don't want to? Do you want to repeat uh, that? Did you, did, no. you get, did you get that? Yeah, I mean, with, with my work, I, I guess when you, when you make work about your own experiences, most, most times, I mean, aspects of the work is always going to be political, whether you like it or not, because p- politics is, a, is about cultural politics, you know, sexual politics, racial politics, loads of, even art world politics is involved. So it's always going to come up in conversation. But then I guess when you go to realms of abstraction, then that, that's where you can kind of... Um, move away from that but when you start representing the body it's, it's almost hard to, to move away from that discourse of politics I know both all of your work is political I mean each of you so do you want to say something more about that or so kind of you thank you age before beauty this. Um, yeah I mean I, I think I suppose the thing that I would say is that I, I actually agree with most of what you said, apart from the bit about abstraction. Mm. Um, I think that um, abstract, or so-called abstract art, if that's not, I'm not being rude, but you know, abstraction to me is, is no less political than any other kind of art form. It's just that um, it's the discourse around it is not necessarily always um, quite so, so obvious. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah. So, and, so I think generally, I, I think because obviously the title of the talk is around politics in art, and I, and politics, if we break it down, is the struggle for influence and power between people over the course of their lives, and over, and perhaps more importantly, over other people. I think politics is about the struggle for power over over others, or you could say. Politics is a struggle for liberation from people having power over you. It's a struggle for freedom in those ways. And I think that that, that um, aspect of our lives is, is, is kind of universal, that we're all caught up in, in that in various ways and including um, you know, through our practice. And just for example, to give one example, I mean, one, when you mentioned about abstraction, just to show that thing, is that it, after the Second World War, when American artists started to embrace abstraction in various ways, um, and particularly with artists like Jackson Pollock, um, with these sort of gestural sort of um, works that he was making. 
so it is said in, 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 in the histories now that the CIA wanted to promote this kind of work because they felt that that, that sort of um, so-called freedom within the work represented an, an opposition okay. to the Soviet Union and to its you know, supposedly more repressive society. So, so in, in other words, people could find a political message even in the most un, apparently un-representational um, you know, work. So, and I think that's a lesson, really, that, um, about interpretation, which is that the other thing is you can't, also as an artist, when we put our work in a gallery, we've got no um, sort of real much control over how it might be interpreted. Um, and it may be interpreted in ways which we find difficult. Uh, as well as in ways which we which we approve of. Yes. Do you want us to have anything to add? I mean, I just wanted to say that even with Pollock, um, lots of people. I mean, and in some of Pollock's biographies, he talks about how his work is influenced by, like, um, jazz improvisation. Mm. So you can't somehow get away from exactly. the notion yeah. of blackness, even if it's not represented physically in the book. It's it's, it's the aesthetic is there yeah. that people are appropriating. Yeah. And plus that he used methods to derived from Native American yeah. um, sort of sand paintings as yeah. well. So, so you may, you can't really, yeah. So there's a kind of, a kind of a post or a colonial appropriation yeah. within the work. Maybe that's why the CIA liked it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you, had a, you had a question. Thank you. I just to acknowledge the work. Um, and the depth of it. Yeah. It's just yeah. really just acknowledge that. Um, I was really interested in the push and pull between art and politics um, and that symbiotic relationship between expression and the need to express in, in the Zimbabwean context where we both come from. I think we're, see, we're observing art in that expression because there's no other avenue. There had been no other avenue. Mugabe wouldn't have allowed it. So we saw an incredible amount of art. Um, but my question was really on gender. Um, are we seeing enough female artists in the continent? Uh, and if the expression has any kind of limitation, whether it be political, whether it be cultural, whether it be social, um, are we satisfied with the number of female artists that are coming out within the continent, out of the continent? Clearly your work has pushed borders and boundaries, um, but could we, could we have more violence? And where are they? Uh, I'm just kind of fascinated with that. So I think that is a there's a there's a story to be told, um, and it's not necessarily a negative story. It's it's a, it's a it's a gendered story and gendered lenses yes. in which we've observed, you know, our, our own history and our own future and how we determine that. Um, just I'm just wondering whether we have enough of that and where do we look for that? Do we look for that in the continent, or is it here in the diaspora? Can I quickly respond and then I, can yeah. I invite? So my partner is Sonia Boyce and she did the documentary which was on BBC, which is about forgotten histories and um, forgotten canons, uh, which included, it was generally about forgotten artists from, in, which are held in national collections in this country but are not being seen since, since the 1950s. And a lot of these artists are female artists, which is which is quite interesting in the context that now we are in a situation where somehow Britain 
kind of wants to embrace um, artists from a very particular generation, my generation, um, which is like um, Zubayna Himid, um, in one context, um, who does a very different style, I would say, of painting to the work of Lynette, whose, whose work has also been, when she had a, a beautiful show at Serpentine in 2015. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that was a real, and then got, got nominated for the Turner Prize. I thought that, that was, I mean, she was the first black woman to be nominated for the Turner Prize, I think. Yeah. Um, I thought that was a really interesting context. But again, it's all about trying to uncover all these, you know, these untold stories. Um, there's an amazing artist called Althea McNeish, who was prominent, like, you know, did the designs for John Lewis in the 1950s. Um, very few people, she's still alive today, very few people know about her work, and she's just one of thousands um, um, that somehow have got lost in the narrative. Um, so there's a lot of archaeological work that needs to be done around, around that, um, which, which, is, which, is very, which is very political, um, because there are political forces that are not pushing resources um, to allow us to do this. And also to enable, I mean, most I imagine all of you teach at some point, I know that Kamafri does, that doesn't allow that, those stories to be told to younger generations who are, who are going through schools and colleges. So I just needed to kind of get that one off my chest. <laughs> Did you want to do? I mean, I, when, I was, when I was studying at, at Wimbledon, I didn't have, there were not many references to, to black artists in general. I had to find that out for myself. So those artists, are not, like, like he said, they're there, but we just have not been taught about them. And uh, I watched the documentary, uh, this Sonia Boyce documentary, and very important, I think people should watch it, because there is a lot to learn. Um, yeah, and I guess that's why I always reference white male artists, because those are the ones I grew up um, hearing about. Do you want to respond to that? Don't have to, but I'm just... Um, no, I'll listen to what Irvin's going to say first. <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to respond to that? Well, I mean, if, if I could comment on the state of um, the development of the inclusion of black female artists in, in uh, the art world, I mean, I can see, definitely see that it's improving to some degree. I mean, I know many female artists practising today. Um, I could name many. But, you know, it's just about gaining visibility. And I feel like platforms such as, you know, Instagram, for example, as mundane as it sounds, are, are ways that you can engage with their practices, you know, if you start to follow. I can give you loads of names, but I'll probably forget some, so I don't want to offend anyone. But, you know, there's, there are many practicing today, and I definitely see an improvement. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I grew up with loads of women, so you know, I've always, I always feel more comfortable around the company of females, and, and I support, and I want to support that advancement of the inclusion of black female artists um, that are accepted into the institution. Yeah. There are also some in the audience, and I see she's right there. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, we're there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, well, can I add my tuppence worth if it's yes. worth in that? I mean, I think, um, you know, you're talking about sort of representation of African women or black women in, in the art world. 
and I, I do agree that there is a, that there is a, 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 a issue, a very big issue. Um, and I think it kind of, there's a, so um, over the last couple of years, I've been teaching um, uh, black thought in art um, at the same university, um, at um, University of the Arts London. And, and one of the, in my research for that, one of the kind of um, sort of ideas which I came across, which I hadn't been as familiar with as I should have been, was the notion of intersectionality, which is um, a sort of concept which has been primarily put forward by a, an American um, sort of uh, thinker called Kimberly Crenshaw. And she talks about um, the way in which there are sort of that societies, or, or what am I trying to say, that, that when you have a, a society which um, can, has multiple methods of sort of um, creating hierarchies of, you know, the ins and the outs, the, 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 the uppers and the lowers, um, then when a person finds himself at the intersection of more than one of those um, structures of oppression, then their, their whole experience of that society is, is, much more, is much worse than if they are only at one intersection. So, so for example, she talks about the intersection of race and gender. That if, that, um, and that if you're a, you know, a, a, a black man, for example, your circumstances may be um, harmed by your racial identity if you're a white woman, your circumstances may be harmed by your female identity. But if you're a black woman, at the intersection of those two things, not only might you suffer two kinds of um, forms of oppression, but also that neither of them, or you might not be recognized in that. You might some, become invisible in that. And she gave a really interesting example, if I, if I may, of uh, in her text, which I think, I, which is, I can't remember the title of it, but. You can go and find it, Kimberly Crenshaw, she's a famous person. So um, she gave this uh, interesting example of a, of a sort of group of factory workers in, in, the, in the United States, because she's a lawyer, so that's where she comes from. And she said that in this group of factory workers, um, this group of female factory workers were not getting the promotion that they felt they deserved, this black, black female factory worker. So they took their case to the courts. And the courts said, well, we looked at this factory and there's lots of black guys who are managers, and there's lots of white women who are managers, so there's no racism, there's no sexism, so your case is dismissed. So, but there were no black female managers. Or the, you know, the, so the promotion for them was being... So in other words, although the, the, the company had been you know, um, trying to mitigate its, race, its, race, its racial practices and mitigate its, sex, its sexist practices and misogynistic practices, the, the black woman somehow was left out of this um, equalizing thing. So I think that you, the, the point that you make is, is valid on a social level in general. Um, and I think the art world is no different from that. And you just have to ask yourself, how many black women gallerists are there? How many black women directors of um, museums are there? To understand that actually this is a real issue in terms of representation in art in our industry, for want of a better word, 
and that certainly we should all be thinking about ways, and I know David in the International Curators Forum has been a pioneer in trying to um, sort of, um, you know, um, change, change, the, change these, as I'm sure many people here have. Yes, I think, yeah. I think one of the questions has to be not be compla complacent and let the industry sort it out. I think, I mean, I like Lisa for you to say something because there are, there are individuals who are trying to make the interventions and not wait for the industry to try and do that. And I quite like some of your work that you've been trying to do to try to make those change happen. I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but you might want to say something about that as well, just to show you there are people who are trying to... Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, sure. A few years ago, um, I used, as you said, Instagram as a platform to start making connections between different artists and practices that exist that's not really given as much visibility as I'd like, really, especially from the African diaspora, but particularly in the UK. So the platform is called Black British Art, but it's not on its own. There are a few other initiatives like that. I've got a, a very close friend of mine who started up a collective of Black British female artists. Who She's also had a show recently. Yeah. Got a show going on right now yeah, at yeah. Taffeta Art Gallery. So there are various um, individuals who are looking to increase visibility and empower um, a more you know, representational um, and egalitarian art world. Um, but I haven't, can I attack on the last question to the yes, panel? Yes, because we've got time just for one more question, yes. I'm just really interested. I mean, I was, I was very moved by the gesture in your um, Lisbon residency where you gifted the work back to uh, the sitters. Yeah. And it just brought to mind the, you know, the power in engaging with your audiences and how that informs your approach to portraiture and your general practice. And I wanted to know, um, just from the other panelists, how important it is to engage with audiences is that as part of your approach to portraiture, like engaging. I love that vision of uh, skateboarders, you know, <laughs> a skating park in uh, Zimbabwe. But um, yeah, that was it. Um, yeah, I think it's important, especially when I had the solo show at, at Tyburn. Um, a lot of people came. Uh, Dorcas did a, um, uh, a get-together with a lot of Zimbabweans, and it was really good that there were the support from the Zimbabwean community in London was uh, extreme, and I think I do want to engage with that audience uh, a lot more than... Um, sort of selling work I guess but um, but also it's it's it's, um, it's difficult because you you are trying to sort of show your own individual experiences but then also try to include the whole um, collective of people so yeah I think um, the audience is important for me you <laughs> <laughs> I'm always thinking about um, the audience when I, when I make work. I mean, I like... There's a playful aspect to my practice. I mean, I like to, to play games to a degree. I like to make puzzles. I like to use objects that can create associations in, in the minds of the viewers of, of the work. And so I like to um, think about 
creating equations that viewers can kind of solve, but they take quite a while to interpret somehow. Um, because there's, there's an element of ambiguity that I, I feel people enjoy. Um, I mean, for example, if you look at music, you've got amalgamations of drums, bass, guitars, guitars, and keyboards and so on, but it's about that unity between different elements that create, that makes people stay engaged with the work. So that's why with my paintings, for example, I like to incorporate different media. And like, so I'll, sometimes I have a painting with paint next to cardboard or cardboard next to rope or so. So it's just like, there's this, this constant shift in materiality which creates, which keeps the, the viewer um, interested. But it's quite hard to keep someone captured by your work. So I guess as an artist, it's something I have to think about. Great. I'm sorry, but I have to wrap up. And just to say that in all the work that we've seen today, I just think, just wanted to say thank you, but also to say thank you for being very courageous. It takes courage to be responsible. It takes courage to have imagination at such a level to kind of develop imagination process. And it takes courage to be open and generous to talk about your work to the audience. So thank you for that. Thank you.